Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Most restaurant owners are not former spies. They haven't escaped wartime occupation or walked for months to safety. Most restaurant owners also are not owners because their friends backed out of a lease, leaving them with an unoccupied restaurant. But most restaurant owners are also not Cecilia Chang, a woman who did open a restaurant because her friends decided they didn't want to open a restaurant. And the landlord told Chang, too bad, you have already leased this place. And Chang's story gets even more interesting from there. The restaurant she opened, the Mandarin in San Francisco, was one of the restaurants that most changed America, according to historian Paul Friedman. The menu actually had instructions for how to eat northern Chinese food because Cantonese food at that time was so dominant. Friedman says that restaurants not only change what we eat, but they change our culture and our habits. In fact, 2015 was the first year that Americans spent more on restaurants and bars than they did on groceries. Friedman is a professor of history at Yale and author of the book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He says the degree to which restaurants can impact people, whether they're famous or just little storefronts that only a few people know about, is quite incredible. One of the restaurants in this book is Howard Johnson's. Another is a chain that was popular in the Northeast called Shrafts. And people, their eyes will, you know, start to tear with nostalgia talking (laughs) about these places. So uh, you talk in 10 Restaurants That Changed America about the first real modern restaurant being a place called Delmonico's uh, in New York City, which is still there. Um, But I want to talk about a place that you just mentioned, a little bit less fancy, Howard Johnson's. Um, I I think a lot of people remember it. I certainly remember it. Um, But talk about how Howard Johnson's revolutionized eating in America in this kind of standardized way. It was a place that is remembered with nostalgia, but remembered for rather bland food. In fact, it was quite innovative in its food as well as in its marketing. Howard Deering Johnson uh, was an entrepreneur who developed a kind of ice cream that was richer than the standard ice cream. So he began as an ice cream stand owner in the uh, period just after the First World War. But he established restaurants along the roadsides of the growing highways of an automobile-infatuated America. Mm. This was not the first of such restaurants, but most of those restaurants were kind of unpleasant, truck stop, hash house kind of places. They didn't feel they had to offer you very good food because you weren't going to be coming back anyway. Howard Johnson's developed a wholesome, hygienic, predictable, family-friendly image, all of which we kind of take for granted, but that actually had to be invented at a certain Mm. time, the certain time being the 1920s. And the Depression, far from killing that, actually was good to Howard Johnson's. People continued to drive for pleasure. They took their kids. And that was the era, the 30s, when Howard Johnson started to dominate the highways. When it seems like, as you say, it's a car restaurant. I mean, restaurants in general before that, I would guess, would be like in the center of cities where populations are, where people are going to be going by and coming in. But this was meant for for a different kind of technology and a different group of people. Yeah. 
So you can't have fast food without Howard Johnson's as the model, even though they had a fairly extensive menu. But the standardization that you were talking about, the predictability, they had a certain look. They had an orange roof yes. with a sort of blue design. And after the Second World War, a very distinctive kind of modernist shape. The purpose of that was so that you could see it ahead in time to huh. pull over. In the 1920s, other restaurants would have billboards. Howard Deering Johnson thought that was tacky. <laughs> in order then to alert you, you had to have a distinctive look. And of course, the fact that you had a distinctive look and a distinctive product or set of products meant that people knew what to expect. Now in our age, we want originality, we want artisanal food, we want creative stuff. But until relatively recently, people wanted to know what they were going to get. They loved predictability. They knew they would get the fried clam strips or the uh, ice cream or the they served frankfurters in a kind of triangular bun that had butter on it. It's very distinctive, but also eminently predictable. But, you know, I would argue we still really like predictability. I mean, that is a lot of the p appeal of everything from McDonald's to, you know, Sweet Green, which is a salad chain. I mean, it is the same from one store to another store to another store. And I think, yes, people, I mean, I agree, people do like novelty, but I think people also like knowing that Applebee's is Applebee's and like you can go in there and, you know, get something that you know about. You can get the fajitas. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That. People yes. want a combination of predictability and creativity. So a place like Sweet Greens or Chipotle that produces a semi-custom-made product, even if you order the same thing every time, then you get the best of both worlds. So that's kind of the magical place now. But for the period in which Howard Johnson's flourished, just like for the period in which McDonald's ruled the roadways, uh, a more absolute kind of predictability hold the personal attention, hold the creativity. There are some, you know, Burger King advertised on the basis of have it your way, which is a little bit of a nod to creativity. But of course, nobody's really fooled that this was, uh, you know, an individually produced, uh, lovingly curated product. So I want to talk about another restaurant. It's still around today. You can go visit it. Um, it's called Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, started by Alice Waters. And I think it's kind of a funny thing to say about a place whose who's motivating force is pretty much, let's offer fresh local ingredients. But this is a restaurant that set off an avalanche of food trends that I think it's, it's pretty fair to say still reverberate more than 40 years after the place started. That's certainly right. And so there are really two things here. One is the impact of Chez Panisse. When I mentioned this project to people who were involved in restaurants or food, and I said I was going to look at 10 restaurants without naming them, people would immediately say, oh, well, Chez Panisse has got to be one of them. Hmm. So I've had some pushback on some of my restaurant choices. No one has ever said, oh, what, what's Chez Panisse doing there? Huh. Uh, you can't have fresh, local, seasonal, cured the whole panoply of the adjectives that we use now for restaurants without Chez Panisse. And what you said is correct, that it's hard to imagine when that was 
new when that was a weird right. innovation. Right. <laughs> Successful innovations always later appear to be natural and to be inevitable. What characterized most American dining, but also supermarkets and what people bought was a different kind of innovation before the 1970s, and that was variety. America was never very good at producing very high quality, and American consumers didn't really demand necessarily that the produce be seasonal, that the meat be as highly flavored and as rich as possible. What they wanted, they were willing to substitute intrinsic quality for variety. So the ice cream might be made in a factory, but it came in 28 flavors. The uh, orange juice might be carted up from Florida in metal trucks, but it comes in, you know, Grove Stand or some pulp or no pulp or calcium added right. to it. The basic model of the American food industry, and it's not a conspiracy or anything like that, this is what people until recently preferred, is to offer you all kinds of different choices. So it's not just tomato sauce. It's tomato sauce with garlic, with basil, with additional olive oil, uh, with uh, clams. But it's still an industrial product. What's hard for the American food industry to deliver on, but now it's certainly trying just because of the pressure of the model established by Chez Panisse, is freshness, is seasonality, is some kind of close connection with what this thing originally was as a plant or an animal. And that's tough because it's not scalable. What do you think that the role of the restaurant in America is now? Because, it I mean, it's enormous. If you think about food that is not made in the home. That's a lot of the food that we eat. I mean, some of the food we might take back to our houses that was made at a restaurant and some food we eat at the restaurant. But when you think about a restaurants and culture right now, what, what do you see happening? I guess two things, maybe one good, one bad. The good is that restaurants like Chez Panisse, obviously, but many others have taught us a lot about what's possible, what things can taste like, how to eat better, how to integrate vegetables into your diet as more than just side dishes, for example, or when asparagus is at its best in the place that you live in. On the other hand, and less favorably, the fact is that if you're interested in health, uh, you should cook your own food. Restaurants are developed, really, their whole purpose is to get you to eat a lot of food. And their success is based on large portions and on uh, food that's flavorful, which includes putting a lot of salt in the food. So generally, if you cook at home, you have more control over how much you're eating and over what you're eating. So the fact that more money is spent on dining out than on groceries, as you said at the opening of the program, is probably not a good thing for mm. the uh, overall health of the uh, American population. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, the restaurants also show us some ways of eating well, well both in the sense of health, uh, healthful and well in the sense of enjoyably. Paul Friedman is the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He's also a professor of history at Yale. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. 
felt like this interview broadened your mind a little, maybe changed your perspective, or even made you just go, huh, that was interesting, take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes. It'll help more people find their way to our show. Plus, we will be indebted to you, and someday that karma is coming right back at you.